<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hello, everybody. I'm Lou Dobbs. This is The Great America Show. Welcome. Thrilled we could get together, and thanks for joining us. Today, we, as usual, will be talking about our national politics, the economy, the quality of our lives in America. I want to bring to your attention, if I may, a poll in the Wall Street Journal this week that is more disturbing than any poll I've seen in my career in radio, television, and podcasting. I tell you that only to say, prepare yourself for bad news about our country. Our deal here is we talk straight, you and me, about every subject, every question, and today is no exception. It's such a sad reflection of our country, this poll, I feel like I should say I'm sorry at the outset. With that, here we go. This poll was done by the Wall Street Journal and NORC at the University of Chicago. I don't normally give too much weight to polls. I take them all with large amounts of salt. But this one seems entirely different. And unfortunately, it seems reliable. If it's off, I doubt it's off by much. Its findings are nothing short of dismaying to me, and I'm sure all who care deeply about this great country are great people. The journal said this of its poll, quote, Patriotism, religious faith, having children, and other priorities that help define the national character for generations are receding in importance to Americans, end quote. That description is something of an understatement, I'm afraid. Here are some of the numbers and a few of the categories important to those surveyed. You decide. First, I'll give you the value or the priority. Then the percent who felt the value was very important to Americans 25 years ago. And the percent who do so now. Here we go. Patriotism. In 1998, 70% of those surveyed felt patriotism was very important. Now, almost half that number, only 38%, still consider patriotism to be very important. Religion. Back in 1998, 62% felt religion was very important to them. That number has now fallen to 39%. Having children. Almost 60% felt having kids was very important in 1998. That number is now only 30%. Only half as many think having children is very important. And fourth, money. In 1998, 31% thought money was very important. Now that percent has risen to 43%, more than a third more now saying money is very important to them. After living through the pandemic, the Biden hyperinflation, volatile markets, it's understandable. As I said, those declines, both dramatic and dismaying, the declines in patriotism, religion, and having children, hit me like a brick, frankly. I expect you as well. 
half as many Americans putting a priority on having children. That is a sure statement of a lack of faith in our country's future, our future. The decline in the percent of Americans for whom religion is very important is troubling, but I can't say it was unexpected. Religion is constantly under assault from the secular left, the anti-religion culture that has grown up, and the national media that is aggressive. I don't like it, but can't say it's a surprise given the country's lack of moral values. And the free fall in American patriotism is horrific in what it both is and what it portends for the country. The Marxist left controls our government, of course, our schools, colleges, universities, media of all kinds. That amounts to a brainwashing on a national scale and inescapable indoctrination of Marxist ideology that permeates now American society, which means there's no clear way to recover our arguably most critical value, which preserves and protects all our founding values, our national values, or at least what once were our national values. As I said, the journal poll isn't inspiring to say the least, but it is, I think, a credible snapshot of where we are as a people today. Not good. It should at the very least motivate us all to work harder for the America we prize for ourselves and for future generations. And now, new developments in the Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg's persecution of President Trump. The jury went home again yesterday without hearing evidence, without voting on any charge against President Trump. Barricades were also taken down. Uniformed police officers were pulled from the area around the courthouse in downtown Manhattan. All that leading to some speculation that the district attorney is about to drop his case against Donald Trump. Meanwhile, in Washington, D.C., the chief D.C. district judge has ordered former Vice President Mike Pence to testify about his talks with President Trump in the days leading up to January 6. The Obama-appointed judge, James Bosberg, is hearing the special counsel's case against the president's handling of top-secret documents that Mr. Trump had in his Mar-a-Lago office, and which he says he declassified, as well as allegations the president interfered in or obstructed the transfer of power. There are times it's hard to believe that the District of Columbia federal judges and DOJ prosecutors do anything other than work on cases and in courtrooms committed to nothing else but the deep state's persecution of President Donald Trump. And it's been going on now seven years. Three of the cases outside of D.C. are in New York. Our guest today is the founder and executive editor of the highly successful website dedicated to politics, national political reporting, elections, campaigns, and polling, Real Clear Politics. Welcome, Tom Bevan. Great, as always, to have you with us here on The Great America Show. President Trump under relentless lawfare by the left, the Marxist Dem DA Bragg, having trouble bringing, apparently, though, a grand jury to indict the president. A weak case, and it looks weaker by the day. Your thoughts, Tom? Well, uh, I mean, we'll see what happens with this as, as you know, this string plays out. Um, clearly, 
it seems from everything that I've read and heard, and I'm not a legal expert, but I do, uh, you know, I do read a lot of legal experts and, and everyone that I've read suggests that this, this, should he be indicted, uh, for, uh, this crime that it is, uh, as, as Jonathan Turley put it legally pathetic, that it's, it's really, um, an abuse of of prosecutorial discretion to uh, make these charges and stretch it into a felony for a, for an action that was seven years ago unrelated to you know campaign finance et cetera et cetera. Um, it's been fascinating the way this whole thing has played out with Trump you know announcing that he was going to be arrested and sort of sent everybody into a tizzy and now we're everybody's sort of hanging on. Uh, the the grand jury every single day and it keeps getting canceled and you know so it's been a bizarre spectacle um, and unlike anything we have ever seen and and so we'll see whether we we actually cross the Rubicon here in indicting a former not just a former president remember the potentially future president uh, and certainly he is the one of the only announced candidates on the Republican side running for the nomination in 2024. Yeah, you're exactly right, and I, and I do want to uh, highlight the appearance of Robert Costello, uh, who at one time was a representative, legal representative for uh, Michael Cohen, also a former prosecutor himself, uh, a terrific lawyer, uh, puts himself before the grand jury and decimates uh, Michael Cohen's credibility, uh, calling him without question a pathological liar. Uh, staying straightforwardly that uh, everything that he had said was a lie. Uh, it was powerful testimony. Uh, and then for Alvin Bragg to have over 300 emails and only produce six of them for, for the grand jury. I, I mean, Alvin Bragg, and as you said, I'm no attorney either, but that is uh, that sounds like a crime to me. What do you think, Tom? <laughs> Look, I Alvin Bragg is someone who has, um, you know, he's been vocally after um, anti-Trump and and vocally after not just vocally, but I mean, he's been after Donald Trump as as a lot of folks, uh, Democrats in New York have been Letitia James and others. I mean, this has been this is how this is how they ran their campaigns. This is how they got elected. This is how they're demonstrating. Uh, to folks that they, you know, uh, th these are the promises that they're trying to make good on. So, I, you know, Politico came out with a story the other day, which was just farcical. This, you know, that he's he's a real by the book guy, and and uh, <laughs> you know, which just the way the media has has handled this as well, I think, has been um, well uh, unfortunate. Let's just put it that way. I think that's probably a, a, a kind description. Um, there's been a lot of talk about the process, but not a lot of talk about just how big of a stretch this would be and how unprecedented something like this would be. And, and certainly, I think even even Democrats could admit um, that this would set an awful precedent. I mean, th this is the continued weaponization of our politics. And, and you know, Democrats may be jumping up and down and cheering now because they think, you know, the, the quote unquote walls are finally closing in on Trump. Um, but, you know, next time around, it could be it could be a Democrat who's it could be Joe Biden. It could be a future Democratic president uh, or office holder who is in the legal crosshairs. And it's just it's a bad development for our republic that we find ourselves in this kind of situation. 
Unquestionably. I was reading the other day of some comments, and among them uh, was why the the Marxist Dems are behaving as they are, uh, because as you say, there are cycles here. But the commenter pointed out that the Marxists are now in it uh, for the whole enchilada. There's not going to be a next time in their in their worldview right now, their at least U.S. view, uh, and they are going to be the dominant uh, party emerging victorious from what has been uh, outright uh, vicious uh, assault on the Constitution, on the American way, fundamental principles, ethics, heritage, you name it, they've gone after it. Uh, what do you, what's your reaction to that? You know, I, I'm not, uh, I, I, you know, if you, if you study politics and you study history, uh, that seems unlikely. I mean, there, there are ebbs and flows. There are, um, you know, rhythms to, to our, our political life. I mean, and, and there are also, you know, uh, constant proclamations that, that, you know, it's, it's end times for, for one side or the other. I mean, I can remember, you know, we started real clear politics in 2000. I remember in 2008, after Barack Obama was elected, that that was the end of the Republican party. I mean, that, that this was going to be a, a rump party. It was going to go the way of the Whigs, et cetera, et cetera. And lo and behold, two years later, Republicans absolutely demolished the Democrats in that midterm election. Uh, they ended up winning, you know, the gubernatorial elections less than a year later in New Jersey and um, Virginia. So I, I think some of those pronouncements are, are uh, you know, a little bit, I mean, I do think we have gotten more, there's no question, Lou, I mean, the data supports this when you look at polls that we, we become more tribal and more partisan as a country. Um, and that's something that's been happening for some time, but it, it certainly has accelerated under Obama, accelerated even more under Trump and has continued under Joe Biden. Um, and that people now look at each other. It used to be that we would just disagree about things, uh, about policies, but um, now each side views the other side as an existential, literally an existential threat to their uh, way of life. And so it has taken on, um, I think the, the, the tone of arguments um, has taken on a, a more dire, um, more dire tone. And um, but I, you know, I'm not, I'm not convinced that that that's the case that we're headed towards civil war or that uh, this is going to be, you know, that the the progressives, liberals, Marxists, whatever you want to call them, are are, you know, they're Marxists are going to be winning and 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 have like some final victory from which uh, the other side is never going to recover or reemerge. I just I I just don't buy that as a fundamental premise. Well, obviously, I would hope that you're right, <laughs> and my fears <laughs> are misplaced. I I have to wonder, though, when I watch uh, a man like uh, former President Trump, four years uh, as president, he is under assault. Uh, the FBI, the, the Department of Justice, the Democratic Party all aligned uh, in an effort to to frame him. Uh, they successfully framed General Michael uh, Flynn, his national security advisor. Uh, no, no accounting at all for what were obviously criminal uh, acts 
by the by the deep state and various uh, members of the Department of Justice, the FBI, four directors of the FBI successively lying to the American people about the Russian hoax, about the uh, the investigations into it. Uh, and then here we are seven years later and on it goes. Only the, most of the energy is that uh, now with the ebb of the January 6th committee, it's in the state prosecutors and Manhattan DA's offices. Uh, that gives great teeth, at least to me, uh, uh, to those concerns about uh, the intent uh, and the and the manifest anger of the the Marxist Dems who are attacking, it seems, every institution of every element of American life. Well, I will certainly agree with you that you know Donald Trump is is uh, in many ways a unique historical political figure. Obviously, elected without any prior political, you know, holding holding office or being in the military, and the reaction to him, as you mentioned, you know, the not just the Democrats um, and the media, but also, you know, <laughs> aspects of the of the government itself turned on him, including his own party. I mean, don't forget how, you know, members of of the Republican Party sought to try and first deny him the nomination and then worked in opposition to him once he was inside, uh, once he was in in um, in the White House. So he he definitely elicited um the kind of reaction that we have never seen by these different institutions. Um, and they did, I, I think the historical record is pretty clear that that um, these institutions acted in ways that they have never acted before. You had the media literally standing up and declaring themselves as part of the resistance. I mean, this was CNN, MSNBC, obviously, um, and others, but the media acting in a, in a, in a way um, openly declaring that they were against him. Um, and as you mentioned, across the board, you saw norms that were being broken because there was this end justifies the means mentality that um, when it when it came to Donald Trump, is that something that will, because um, Donald Trump is, I mean, look, we're going to go through this again in 2024. Um, but at some point we're going to be on, we will be beyond Donald Trump. And the question is, are all of these institutions, have we sort of crossed a Rubicon there where these institutions are going to forever function that way toward, uh, whoever the Republican nominee is and, and or, you know, president. Um, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I hope the answer is no, but you might be right that, that we have, this is this will become the new normal, uh, not just for Donald Trump, but for 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 any Republican, that, any Republican that's in office. But that's a that's a frightening proposition. It is a frightening proposition. And, and, and before we sort of turn to a world without Trump, let's look at the one that we've got. And that is I for the longest time, Tom, thought Trump derangement syndrome was just a silly, nonsensical rationalization by the left. Uh, to uh, cover uh, the venality of, uh, of their actions against it. Uh, but it turns out it's widespread and there is some considerable, uh, I, I think, evidence that it's a real thing for many left-wing uh, Marxists, name them what you will, uh, in, in this country. But it's still no excuse. It's no rationalization. And this president is the only certifiable president over the course of seven years who committed no wrongdoing. I mean, he went through. Think of this. I mean, it's as if the American people are not keeping score here. 
two impeachments, two special counsels, almost four years of FBI investigation of one kind or the other, and that doesn't include their efforts uh, to frame him uh, and to create the, the great Russian hoax. It is, it seems to me, uh, a very serious and lasting situation that is going to have to be resolved, one hopes, at the, at the ballot box, but one way or another, because this, this state of, uh, of conflict uh, can't just smolder endlessly. Well, I, yeah, I think you're right about that. I mean, we're going to have a, a reckoning here with Donald Trump. The Republican Party is going to have a reckoning with him, um, and we'll see how that plays out. Um, but if he is the nominee, if he does end up winning in 2024, I mean, he's sort of telegraphed that <laughs> in no uncertain terms that that uh, he will is going to try and fundamentally reshape government and and root out a lot of the the uh, you know actors that that worked against him the first time around. So there will be a reckoning uh, with regard to to Donald Trump here in the next you know year and a half. Um, and it may last longer than that if he wins, if he wins election. Um, but you're right. I mean, I, I, look, I think there are going to be textbooks written about Donald Trump's presidency um, because of how unique it was, even in this kind of a tribal environment. As I said, the, the reaction, you mentioned Trump derangement syndrome. I mean, it is... Um, it, it, obviously with the media, obviously with the left, but I'll go back to the, you know, parts of the Republican party. I mean, that just absolutely, um, you think of like the Lincoln project folks, you think of all of the folks that worked, uh, against him because they had that exact same mentality, um, and could not stand. I mean, this is part of, I think this is part of, this was obviously part of Trump's appeal, being an outsider coming into Washington and having all of those, uh, forces sort of arrayed against him from the outset uh, was something that we've never seen before. And obviously, you know, he he managed to get some things done even while battling those forces on a on an absolute daily basis. The fact that he was, for the first time in 20 years, able to raise real wages for the middle class, working men and women and their families in this country, that alone speaks to significant historical achievement, particularly with those forces, as you say, arrayed against him. Paul Ryan uh, and Mitch McConnell were on a seven-year, have been on a seven-year jihad against Donald Trump. Uh, it's the most peculiar thing. Uh, Romney, the same. We have this class of uh, rhinos within the Republican Party has have been every bit the obstructionists of in not some cases uh, uh, even more uh, than the the left of the Democratic Party, uh, but we have a a new formulation of power. It seems to me too in the nation's capital, we have the FBI uh, who's given up a portal to uh, the Democrat law firm, the DNC law firm, the uh, the Clinton uh, uh, law firm, Perkins Coy. Uh, how many law firms in the country have a portal right into the FBI? I would hesitate to say the more than I would say probably there's one for sure, but I think probably no more than three. And I bet you none of them would go to a Republican, so-called Republican firm. 
we're looking at a weaponization of government against the citizens, whether it's uh, the, the, the collusion of the Education Department, the Department of Justice, FBI, with the White House to go after parents uh, and the school board association. Uh, it's one thing after another uh, in which they are attacking, and that doesn't even include 87,000 IRS agents, obviously, that this president wanted uh, and looks like he will get most of. Uh, this is just a realignment of power in D.C. and across uh, all of the nodes of the federal government, isn't it? Well, I mean, look, I think there certainly have been disturbing episodes where you have seen the federal government um, act, as I said, in ways, whether it's against Trump or or even against, as you mentioned, the case of of the FBI, like in these parent school board meetings um, the, and the IRS. I mean, there are certain episodes that I think, um, yes, give people pause. I, I will say also, though, um, when you talk about Trump and we talk about mm -hmm. how he, you know, you mentioned Paul Ryan and Mitt Romney. I mean, Donald Trump has fundamentally changed the Republican Party. I mean, he did it and he did it in in a matter of less than a year. He absolutely reoriented 40 or 50 years of Republican orthodoxy on trade, on foreign policy, um, on immigration, um, just across the board, massive, massive shifts. And he, for whatever reason, um, unlike all the 15 other people who ran from, you know, all of these uh, qualified governors, Jeb Bush, Chris Christie, you know, senators, you name it, um, none of them were able to tap into that uh, which was clearly there in the rank and file of the Republican Party. I mean, those those sentiments were were clearly there, but had been unaddressed for, you know, as I said, decades. And Donald Trump came in and was able to absolutely refashion the Republican Party in his image. And it will continue to be in his image beyond uh, long after he's gone. I mean, we can see that very clearly now. I don't think there's going to be any going back to the you know john mccain mitt romney uh republican party i mean there there is a pre-donald trump phase of the republican party and there is a post-donald trump phase which we are now in and, and that's going to continue for a long long time you really think this is the post-donald trump phase well i'm it could still be the actual donald trump phase <laughs> i'm not saying i'm not making any predictions about what's going to happen with him in no. the republican primary but i'm i'm just saying you know that policy-wise, uh, moving, the, you know, from when Trump ran for office, uh, from that point on, policy-wise, everything has changed and will continue to be in in the sort of America first, nationalist, populist, uh, you know, wing of the party. That That's the party or that's the – that's where all the energy and enthusiasm and ideas are coming from. It is not the – you know, there's not a huge contingent out there that is – is yearning to go back to you know Paul Ryan's uh, and and Mitt Romney's sort of free trade, um, you know, open border or whatever whatever the policy was on immigration um, prior to Donald Trump. I mean, it, there's just not a lot of people in the Republican Party that that want to see the party go back that direction. Yeah, and there are so many people in the party who are MAGA, who are as you say, America first. And that is one of the brilliant strokes, I believe, of, of this, of President Trump, 
is that he brought a populism that is rooted uh, in the his interest in the well-being of the middle class, uh, working men and women, this forgotten American, as uh, as he put it in his campaign, and and the Democratic Party has just given all of that up for gender identity battles, uh, issues over, uh, uh, well, I guess it all goes to the same thing, drag shows in public libraries, uh, adventurous uh, wars. Uh, it looks like this administration wants a war uh, that it can join uh, in Ukraine. Uh, it is impossible to see what the constituency of the Democrat Party under Joe Biden is because he is offering uh, nothing uh, to most of the broadest demographic groups. Uh, he is focusing on the, uh, I, I guess, a series of uh, minorities uh, across society, but his policies are, are, to me, it's just balkanization rather than a, a constituency that's been brought together. Your, your thoughts? No, I, I agree with that. And it's not just Joe Biden. I mean, this is something that's been happening with the Democratic Party for some time. It's, it's you know, identity politics. And Barack Obama was actually very good at this. I mean, he would, they would segment their messages and he would go out and, and address, you know, all of the various constituencies um, and provide them with, you know, their whatever policy tailored to to make those folks feel uh like they were uh included but but again um as you mentioned i think that this is not fdr's party this is not the party of sort of the blue blue collar working class um and in many ways it's it's anathema to that in the sense that um it is it is targeting these tiny little slices of the demographic of 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 you know, the, the, the population um, with this sort of uh, hierarchy of, of victimhood and this idea that it's, it's all about equity and it's all about, um, you know, not equal opportunity, but equal outcomes. And the, the government's going to help engineer that. Um, and, you know, for the 2% of you that are LGBTQ or whatever, you know, the government's going to step in and make sure that, uh, you know, have all of these um, protections and policies. Uh, and so I think that is, um, that's tough to be a national party when you do that, because if you're not speaking to the broadest possible constituency, and that's, you know, if you look at what Donald Trump has done and the Republicans have done, uh, when they talk about wages and, and things of that nature, um, they're reaching across class lines, they're reaching across ethnic lines. Um, it is, it is, uh, I shouldn't say, I'm, I meant, I didn't mean to say class lines. They're reaching across sort of racial lines. Um, it is more class-based than, than race-based, um, because a lot of folks, regardless of whether you're black or brown or, you know, purple or blue, share the same economic, economic interests. They want higher wages. They want lower inflation. They want, you know, reasonable gas prices and energy prices so that they can, you know, increase their standard of living. Um, and so I do think it's, it's, but look, the Democrats, um, you know, Joe Biden did get an awful lot of votes. Um, and I think Republicans have to make sure that they're speaking in ways that don't alienate pieces of the, of, of the population, um, because they're, 
There's a fight over the, you know, 10 or 15% in the middle. The fact that independents didn't go with Republicans in 2022, despite all of the sort of horrendous numbers from the Biden administration, whether it was this job approval rating, inflation, gas prices, you name it. The fact independents didn't vote overwhelmingly for Republicans, um, I think is a cautionary tale. They have to be careful and they have to make sure that they're they're speaking to independents in particular. Oh, without question, they, they represent such a sizable block of the of votes, uh, arguably much larger than the than the uh, sympathetic margins for the Democrats with Republicans and Republicans with Democrats. Uh, I, I I do I do want to kind of explore this idea of of President Biden with all of this now being at thirty eight percent in the most recent polling, uh, coming very close to uh, to the low point of his uh, of his presidency. I'm one of those people, of course, who thinks, how in the world can anyone, given this this man's impairments, uh, his uh, his policies and his uh, awful judgment uh, and agenda, could he have even 38 percent of the American people approve of the job he's doing? Uh, What do you make of it? (laughs) Well, listen, part of this is. you know, you have to look at we're a country now that's watching two movies. I mean, when Donald Trump was in office, Republicans gave him 90, 93, 95% uh, job approval rating. Democrats never gave him more than five, six, seven, eight percent approval rating. Um, and independents sort of bounced around in the middle. It's the exact opposite with Biden, right? Democrats give him, you know, high marks for his job. They think he's doing a bang up job. And Republicans, you know, give him uh, terrible marks and independents are somewhere in between. So he's got a little bit of a higher uh, floor than Donald Trump did, but not much. And and you mentioned this this poll that came out showing nationally, there, the Des Moines Register poll came out last week. Biden's approval rating in Iowa is 30%. And right. just, to, just to sort of hammer home the point I just made, um, he has a 75% approval rating among Democrats. He has a 3% approval rating among Republicans. And among independents, it's 29%. It's still so that high. It's among independents? Yes. 29%. Yeah. So, you know, that's basically three out of four saying they disapprove of the job that he's doing. Um, so, by the way, that's not so different from where he was heading into the 2022 election. I mean, independents... Yeah overwhelmingly were against him, uh, didn't think he was doing a very good job, particularly on the issue of the economy, which everyone rated as the number one issue in that election. Um, But yet, if you look at the exit polls from that election, they didn't hold it against him uh, in the same way that uh, that presidents in the past had been had been penalized for having, you know, 8 percent on uh, inflation or or you know, four dollar a gallon gas, and so how big how big a role do you think uh, J six and Mar-a-Lago, the J six committee and Mar-a-Lago, the raid played in diminishing, uh, mitigating uh, that uh, earlier enthusiasm on the part of independents going into the election. You know, it had some effect. Um, it's really really hard to quantify. Uh, you know, abortion's the other issue. It's like, well, how much did that did did the Dobbs decision have on on uh, impact? You know, in the election, it had some. It had more, I think, 
in certain states where it was on the ballot, like in Michigan and other places. Um, but I mean, I went back and looked at all the pre-election polling to find out, okay, well, you know, what exactly happened here? Um, and it, it wasn't really there in the data. I mean, there was not really an indication. Every single poll, pre-election poll, you know, showed the economy was number one and that, you know, abortion was basically down the list for independents and certainly Republicans. It was, it was up on the list of Democrats. Um, but at the end of the day, it ended up mattering. I, th I think those two things probably, and then you look at candidate quality and some of the candidates, uh, Democrats did a very good job, I think, of, of uh, you know, demonizing Republicans in big races and also, you know, really pouring their resources into those four or five Senate races that mattered the most where Republicans, I think, didn't do as good of a job strategically in, in buttressing those candidates and also getting out of the vote in those states. Yeah, and we have to give Mitch McConnell some credit for that or blame if uh, you prefer, uh, because he actually lined up money against candidates that were uh, Trumpian or Trumpian-like and uh, and did them dirty. Uh, that had an influence as well. And, you know, the there is one area in this that we, when I, we talk about mitigating forces, countervailing influences within the the body politic, we haven't even mentioned the media. Uh, the national media is aligned with the Democratic Party, uh, almost absolutely. There is very little uh, margin between their their interest and that of the of the of the Marxist Dems. Uh, the coverage has just been so one sided and overwhelming, at least in my judgment, uh, that the American people have been censored by their FBI, their Department of Justice. Uh, by uh, by social media, by uh, legacy media, corporate media, and it's very difficult to break through. And if I'm running the Republican Party, uh, which would not be my favorite job, I can tell you, uh, I just can't even imagine where you begin to break down that resistance to the ideas of Republicans and moderates and independents uh, and bring forth a real public discussion, debate, and dialogue about important issues. We haven't had hearings in this country on uh, transgender issues. We haven't had debate about a wide open border. We haven't had discussions, hearings in Congress, and it, it goes on. Major issues that are just simply leaving the American people out of the conversation. Uh, your reaction to the what has been a suppressive role uh, rather than a, an enlightening and illuminating role for the for the fourth estate. Well, I, I will certainly agree. And having, you know, not been involved in politics or journalism professionally before starting Real Clear Politics, I really didn't fundamentally understand um, just how um, influence the media was and, and continues to be um, by sort of, you know, democratic values and ideals. But you learn that pretty quickly. When you follow the news professionally, it doesn't take long before you're seeing, you know, the way headlines are written, the pictures that are used, the language that's used, the way the way these stories are structured. Um, just over and over and over again, you see uh, the major media in this company, sort of in this country, um, really sort of putting their thumb on the scales for for Democrats and and in many ways giving Republicans uh, the the opposite treatment. You know, I look. 
immigration, for example, I mean, it was a big issue in a lot of these races. I mean, it was it was discussed. You had Mark Kelly running away from the Biden administration on it in, in the Arizona Senate race. Um, I, so it's not that Republicans can't. They, it's not that they can't uh, emphasize their issues, that they can't get those issues, um, amplify them for the public. And they're certainly the way that the media has fractured. There are opportunities and outlets for for Republicans uh, to to drive those sorts of narrative, but they have to do it in the face of knowing that at the at the sort of national level, when you look at most of the media outlets, most of the television outlets, and certainly most of the print publications from the Washington Post, the Wall, Wall Street Journal, even uh, New York Times, etc., that um, that they're going to be they're not going to be given a a, um, a fair shake when it comes to coverage of of their campaigns and the issues that the American people are are caring about. They're in some cases, in most cases, being absolutely censured, though, Tom. Uh, we're we're looking at the example of the 51 intelligence, former intelligence uh, officials who put together that uh, sure. infamous letter uh, consigning the Hunter Biden laptop to Russian disinformation when every single one of those people knew it was a lie including five former CIA directors, yet they were the tool of the Democrat candidate for president, and obviously so. And the Republican Attorney General, Bill Barr, uh, sent out FBI agents to, to absolutely censure conservative and Republican voices and the president of the United States in a critical election, and then didn't intercede when he knew personally that the Russian disinformation letter was a lie. He didn't remark on it to either the, the intelligence community or to uh, the American public who were trying to make a decision between two men running for president. Uh, these are outrageous when we know in subsequent uh, uh, polling that the New York Post article that was censured uh, would have made all of the difference in the margin of victory uh, and that Trump, in point of fact, would have been uh, statistically, at least, we can say, uh, President of the United States. They all, in combination, leave aside all of the issues about rigged electronic voting, rigged uh, ballot harvesting, rigged uh, election uh, timing. Uh, we are talking about changing history, and we have a, a body, po body politic. Yes, the body politic was certainly influenced, but the elites of both parties uh, stayed mum, and understandably, in the case of the Democrats, on the issue and felt like it was better to protect the idea that we had a free and fair election rather than one that was absolutely rigged uh, by by one party. Well, you're not going to get any argument from me about the New York Post uh, story, Hunter Biden laptop, and the way that that, <laughs> you know, the uh, the letter from the 51 uh, security officials or the way that Twitter and Facebook and social media colluded to to suppress that story. I mean, that's well documented. And I think it was just an outrageous example uh, and, a, and a true low point in this country's history in terms of, uh, you know, free speech and journalism. I mean, this is 20 years ago, 30 years ago, um, that kind of story, you'd have every you would have every news outlet in America taking and, and trying to figure that out, 
getting a copy of that and and trying to you know validate those emails and and instead everybody just put up a you know said no we we're not dealing with that it's just disinformation and it was disgraceful and so you're not going to get any argument from me on that um now whether it would change the outcome of the election you know that's that's debatable um but it's certainly whether it would have or not uh the fact that that went down the way it did was an absolute disgrace yeah it, it was a disgrace and uh and i say it straight out it changed history in in my view uh, Tom, we always give our guests the very last word. And if uh, you will, sir, uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you. And if you will, your concluding thoughts today. Well, I just I want to thank you for having me on. It's always great to be with you, Lou, and I, I enjoy uh, chatting with you. Well, those are concluding thoughts, and they're probably, <laughs> and I hereby uh, align myself with those remarks entirely. Tom Bevan, Real Clear Politics. Thanks so much, my friend. A thank you. American. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for being with us. Here tomorrow will be Congressman Matt Gates, champion for President Trump, sponsoring legislation to get our troops out of Somalia. That's right. President Biden put our troops into Somalia among his very first orders as president. Please join us here tomorrow. Till then, God bless you. God bless America.